Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Perhaps uh, no spiritual song is more widely known than the one we just sang about amazing grace. And to hear of this grace is indeed a very sweet sound because of everything that is associated with God's grace. It's interesting, however, that there's no place in Scripture where that specific terminology is used. You don't read the words amazing grace in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that it's, that it's a, uh, uh, an unbiblical principle. It's very much a biblical principle. It's just the point that the words themselves are not found in Scripture. Probably the closest that uh, we find is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter references what he calls the manifold grace of God. Or the varied grace of God, as one translation reads. <clears throat> that idea, or the word manifold, expresses the fact, or the idea that God's grace is shown in a lot of different ways. It's God's many-faceted grace. It's what that word means. This morning I want for us to spend some time thinking about, reflecting on God's amazing grace with this specific question in mind. What is so amazing about grace? We sing it. What does it mean? What is so amazing about grace? And I want to take just a moment, if you can allow me to do this, just Allow me to soothe my own conscience, if you will. Preachers get ideas from a lot of places. And someone has said that uh, originality in preaching is forgetting where you got the outline from. Preachers get ideas from a lot of different sources. And a lot of times we'll take those and we'll get a good idea and, and um, you know, make it our own and switch it around and... Uh, do it our own way. But then occasionally you come across outlines that you go, if I change this at all, it's not going to make it better. It's going to make it worse. So Wade Webster gets credit for this uh, outline. A preacher uh, that has preached a number of different places. I think he's in College Station uh, now. And uh, got this outline from him at Polishing the Pulpit a number of years ago. And I just like the way he did it. So give him credit for this, for this outline. What is so amazing about grace? Consider these points for just a few minutes this morning. Number one, grace required, God's amazing grace required that the highest become the lowest. That's an amazing thing about God's grace. That the highest would become the lowest. It required, God's grace required that God Himself would become flesh. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 1, verse 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, verse 14. Grace required that the highest become the lowest, in that the children have partaken of flesh and blood. He Himself likewise partook of the same. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, humbled Himself, taking upon Himself the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Grace required that the Creator would live among the created. Yes, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. John 1, verses 2 and 3. And the one who created everything by grace came and lived not just among us, but as one of us. It required that the one who was above the angels would become a little lower than the angels. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. What's so amazing about grace? It required that the highest become the lowest. Number two, what's so amazing about grace? It's amazing because it required the richest to become the poorest. Grace required that the one who owns everything, even the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50 verse 10, that He would be born in a barn. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Hebrews 3 verse 4 says, He that built all things is God. A reference to Jesus there that He is indeed divine and He's the one responsible for building all things. Grace required that the builder of heaven and earth be raised as the Son of a carpenter. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Grace required that the King of glory leave the ivory palaces of heaven, Psalm 45, verse 8, to grow up in the cottage of a poor man. Luke chapter 2, verse 24. Grace is amazing because it required one who lived in the city of rest Revelation 14, 13, to come to earth and have no place to lay his head. Matthew 8, verse 20. Grace required that the one who gives us all things richly to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, would have to borrow the tomb in which he was buried. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60. Turn in your Bibles quickly. I know I'm mentioning passages kind of in passing, but I wanted to, to get the flow of the thought. But turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
I've been asked many times over the years, uh, people will say, what, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And obviously that's a hard thing to do, to just pick one. But I guess if I had to just pick one, it would probably be this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you, through His poverty, might be made rich. That's amazing grace. Grace is amazing because it required that the highest become the lowest. Grace is amazing because it required the richest to become the poorest. What's so amazing about grace, number three, because it involves the best dying for the worst. There's no doubt at all that Jesus was the best who ever lived. He was tempted in all points, just like we are, yet He without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. He did no sin, neither was there any deceit found in His mouth. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. His love unmatched. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Grace is amazing because it involves the best dying for the worst. For whom did this one die? Well, we say all mankind. That's true. That's right. And that includes then the worst of the worst. Jesus died for everyone, including the worst that mankind could offer. Jesus died for the ones who shouted for His crucifixion. Acts 2.36 Jesus died for those who laughed as He died. Luke 23.34 Jesus died for those who persecuted Him. 1 Corinthians 15.9 and 10 Jesus died for those who have committed Horrible, horrible sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and following makes that point really about all of us. Where Paul writes how that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And he describes it further as he, as he says, In time past you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, reference to Satan. The, 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 uh, you were uh, children of wrath, even as others. But God, rich in mercy, saved us through His grace. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8. So even the, the, the worst of our sins, Jesus died for all. Think about since that time. We talked about the ones that were responsible for His death and they laughed at Him, they mocked all of that. He died for all those people. But we could add to that individuals throughout history that may have been 
the, the very worst of mankind. Hitler? Did Jesus die for Hitler? Yeah. doesn't mean that, that everyone that Jesus died for received all of the benefits of that death. That's not my point. But did Jesus die for him? Sure. The atheist that awoke this morning and thought evil things about God or said some evil things about Jesus perhaps? Jesus died for him? Yeah. That's what's so amazing about grace is that it involved the best dying for the worst. What's so amazing about grace, number four, it gives us what we need rather than what we deserve. Grace is amazing because it gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. What all of us deserve because of our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6 verse 23. And not just physical death, we're talking really more so about spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. The soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. But grace allows us not only to conquer physical death, which we will in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, but it allows us to escape what is referred to in Revelation 21, verse 8, as the second death. That eternal separation from God that all of us deserve because of sin. Grace enables us to receive what we need, not what we deserve. What's so amazing about grace, number five? Grace is amazing because it cost God everything. Yet it's offered to us for free. It costs God everything. But it's offered to us for free. Things of great value are seldom offered for free. Grace offers us the greatest gift of all, Jesus. And God is the one who incurred the cost of this gift. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3, 16. We have been redeemed, not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but by that which is incorruptible, through the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And it's offered to us, that gift, offered to us for free. It's not forced on anyone. God doesn't force His grace on people. He offers it, and it must be accepted. How do we accept it? By faith. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God offers us that gracious gift for free. I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to earn it. 
I don't have to offer something to God that is on an equal plane as what He's offering me. Because I don't have anything that will do that. Even the best that I have to offer is tainted by sin. And so it can't even compare to what He's offering me. I just have to accept what He's offering. How do I do that? By my faithful response to His offer. You see, when I trust God, which is all God asks me to do, trust me, here's the free gift. Trust me. What does it mean to trust Him? Well, it means you just submit to Him. You, you turn your life over to Him. Which would involve then our faith being active. Our faith not being a dead faith that James describes as being a faith that is not connected to one's obedience, James 2. That's, it's not that faith. It's the faith that's active. It's the faith that responds properly to God. And so if God says, for example, you need to repent of your sins, then you repent of your sins. And if God says you need to be immersed in water, to contact the blood of Christ that washes away your sins, then you do that. Not that by doing that is paying for the gift. It's not. It's still a gift. But it has to be received. If I were, which, which I don't, I probably should have checked my wallet before this morning. Yeah. Sometimes I had to put newspaper in there to keep the sides from growing together. But if I had a $10 bill, I've got a credit card, but if I had a $10 bill and I said, Troy, I want to give you this $10. It's my gift to you, free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to mow my yard for it. You don't have to work for it. It's my gift to you. It's free. If I were to lay that $10 bill down right there and say, all you have to do is come up here and get it. Now, question. Is the gift free? Well, sure. Yeah. I told him it was free. Right? I'm not going to... No, no, no strings. I'm not going to say that you have to earn it by, you know, cleaning my office or whatever. No, it's free. It is a gift. But based upon what I said to him about his reception of the gift, would it require him, would it necessitate him doing something? Yeah, it would. Because I, I put it here and I said, Troy, if you want the gift, all you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is come get it. Well, that would require him to do something. He would have to get up, right? He would have to walk over here. He'd have to reach out his arm. He'd have to take it. And then the gift would be in his possession. But just because he got up and walked over here and got it, did that mean he earned it? No. It was still a gift. But he had to do something in order to receive it. Now, why can't we figure that out as it pertains to salvation? It's the same principle. God offers it for free. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to pay for it. He's not asking us to offer Him something that's equal to it. He just simply says, you have to accept it. Accept the gift. By trusting Me, turning from your sins, confessing your faith, being immersed in water. That's how you accept the gift. But that doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that it's a gift. It's still the gift. 
And that's what's so amazing about grace, is God is the one who incurred all of the cost. Would anybody really argue that by taking someone into water and dunking them under it, that we have somehow paid for what Jesus did for us? I haven't met a person in my life that actually thinks that. And it's a good thing. Because none of that is to be equated with the cost that God incurred for our salvation. That's what's amazing about grace. Is it costs God everything. But He offers it to us for free. Last. What's so amazing about grace? It's amazing because it's greater than all of our sins. Hinted at this point earlier. I want to expand on it just a little bit. Grace is amazing because it's greater than all of our sins. No matter how many sins you've committed, God's grace is greater. Paul put it this way, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now that doesn't give us license to sin, right? Romans 6, 1 and 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, no. We're to be dead to sin. It's simply, Romans 5.20 is simply stating a fact. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Think for just a moment about all of the sins that you have committed in your life. Now add to that all of the sins committed by every person in this room. Add to that number all of the sins committed by the current world population of some 7 billion people. Add to that all of the sins committed by every person who has ever lived since the foundation of the world. Add to that all of the sins that will be committed from this point forward by everyone who will live on this earth if God permits the world to continue. Add all that up. God's grace can cover them all. That's what's so amazing about grace. Now, what does all of this mean on a practical level? Number one, we have a lot to be thankful for. Number two, it means we have hope in times of difficulty. When Paul struggled with what he referred to as a thorn in his flesh, we don't know really what that was specifically, but it tormented Paul, whatever it was. And he prayed that God would remove it. And God's answer was, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. Because in your weakness, I can be strong. 
God's amazing grace is not only something to be thankful for, but it's something that offers us hope and peace and comfort in times of difficulty. But it also means that we have great responsibility. God's amazing grace means we have responsibility. And that was the text that uh, John read at the beginning of this, uh, of this part of our service. From Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us. Yes, God's grace is something to be thankful for. Yes, God's grace is amazing because of what it, it has done for us. But it also carries with it responsibility. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what grace does for us. It not only gives us all of those things to be thankful for, but it also teaches us that we have a responsibility. If we're going to be recipients of God's grace, coming with that is the responsibility of living soberly, righteously, and godly as we look forward to the time when Jesus returns to judge the world and usher His faithful ones into heaven. The Bible says it's possible to receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Don't let that be said of you. If you are a Christian this morning, a recipient of God's grace already, through the cleansing of your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, don't let that ultimately be in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain by turning your back on the one who's offered you, offered you so much. If there's some sin in your life that needs to be dealt with, that you need to, to get rid of, if there's an attitude you need to change, if, there, if your life is not going in the right direction and you know it's not, don't just be thankful for the blessing of God's grace by expressing it in word. Let your gratitude be seen in the way you live. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Allow it to teach you to live a life it's worthy of the sacrifice made for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, and you understand the things that you need to do to receive the grace of God, and you haven't done it, and you're ready to do it, we're ready to help you. If you would like to study further about these things, you, you want to be obedient to God, you want to do what's right, but you're just not really sure about all of that, let us know that today. We'll study with you. We'll help you to understand the truth that you might obey it and be saved. If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, we offer it to you now as we stand together and sing.